0: Welcome to Cancer Conference Update and a review of key presentations from the December 2015 American Society of Hematology meeting in Orlando, Florida. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Nupur Rajay to discuss new research on multiple myeloma reported at ASH and in particular the integration of four recently proved agents into practice – To begin, Dr. Rajay commented on one of the most anticipated phase 3 myeloma trials in recent years evaluating the use of autologous transplant in the era of new agents in this disease.
1: So this ASH, we had the first time when data from the IFM study was presented. Part of the reason why the IFM trial was conducted in the first place was given that we're seeing really high response rates in the context of new drugs. Obviously, the question was, what is then the role of an autologous transplant when we're getting pretty high responses with all of the novel drugs that we have? So to answer that question, the IFM in concert with the Americans, specifically DFCI, have done a very large randomized trial. The IFM component of this trial was about 700 patients strong. And the American counterpart of the trial or the DFCI counterpart, which we also refer to as a determination trial, is an ongoing trial wherein we're going to have close to a little over 650-odd patients in this trial. And the question here is really what is the role of an autologous transplant in a newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patient in the context of new drugs. So that was the backdrop of why the study was done. What happened at ASH this past December was just the IFM piece of it was presented and about three different abstracts were discussed and presented at this meeting. And I'll talk about the first one
0: first, Just to clarify, though, now, these patients got theoretically randomized between upfront and delayed transplant, correct?
1: So that was the way the trial was designed. Everybody gets new drugs. They're randomized to either receive the transplant, you know, after their initial induction, or everybody gets collected, and the other half who do not get transplanted can get the transplant at the time of relapse.
0: And I guess, you know, as you mentioned, there was a PFS advantage, 43 versus 34 months. First of all, did that in any way surprise you, or do you think that was kind of what people were expecting?
1: You know, I wasn't surprised to see a difference in progression-free survival. I do think we would have expected to see that difference. I think it's important to highlight a few differences, though, in terms of what the French trial has done and what we are continuing to do in the determination trial. And one of those features is the fact that in this trial, you know, everybody was initially given the triplet of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. Zone randomized after one cycle, collected after three, half got transplanted, the other half did not. The transplanted ones got two cycles of consolidation. The non-transplanted ones got a total of eight cycles of the RVD, and this was followed by maintenance. Now, the biggest difference between the French study and the American counterpart study is the fact that the time of maintenance. So in the French trial, the maintenance happened for about one year. And at the end of one year, that maintenance was stopped. Now, this is quite different from what we do in the United States because the way we think about maintenance is once we put a patient on maintenance lenalidomide, we continue maintenance up until progression. So that is a big difference. And I do think one has to keep that into account. So although we are seeing differences in PFS, We've certainly not seen a difference in overall survival. And the other important thing to remember in this trial is as patients are continuing on treatment, you do see increases in depth of response and increases and improvements in remission as they go from cycle to consolidation to maintenance and continued maintenance. So we may be converting some more patients as we continue treatment with maintenance. So I do think, you know, the question is still out. In the open, there are nuances between the French trial and the American trial, and the American trial is really going to help us figure out what the duration of that maintenance is and whether the maintenance can translate even into that slight PFS benefit which has been seen in the French data set.
0: So, maybe you know, cut back on the difference, in other words, since the non transplant arm is going to get more effective maintenance, maybe there won't be as big a difference in the PFS?
1: That is entirely possible. And we'd have to wait or not exactly. And you know, that's something we are going to have to wait on, which is why I still think, you know, a lot of people look at the study and say, well, we've answered the transplant question already. I don't think so, because there are subtle differences between the two studies. I still do think that the American study is an important study to complete. And once we have that data set, we'll be able to answer certain very important questions, which include how long do you need to keep people on maintenance, and does maintenance, in fact, improve depth of response, and can we then shorten that PFS difference, which was seen in the French part of the study.
0: What are the current projections on when the American trial might be reporting? So
1: I'm going to say ASCO of 2017 would be more realistic, Neil, because we'll have fully accrued the trial, and we'll have adequate follow-up also.
0: So, you know, this trial was looked upon, you know, as very, very important in terms of dealing with the transplant question with the so-called new era of drugs, because the old trials, you know, you didn't have, I guess, proteasome inhibitors and, I mean, agents. But on the other hand, particularly in terms of looking at survival, now you've got all the other drugs, you know, the monoclonal antibodies, exazimab, an oral proteasome inhibitor. So, It's kind of a moving target. I don't even know if we get the answer to this trial. Is it really going to be relevant anymore?
1: You know, you're right. I think the good news is we have so many different options of treatment. I think this is an evolving field. We are seeing more and more. And to the extent where we have drugs, where we're beginning to realistically think about curative platforms for multiple myeloma. And not just with the treatments now, Neil. We have the tools to be able to try and address those questions of getting to a curative state. That is by looking at things like minimal residual disease. And part of what was done here was also looking at MRD status. And, you know, I do think it's important to understand what your goal of treatment should be in the upfront setting, whether it be a transplant eligible patient or in my mind, actually even a transplant ineligible patient. You have to try and get the best possible response and you have to try and get the depth of response. To the point where you can get to MRD negativity in our patients, if possible.
0: I guess that certainly is a thought you hear a lot from myeloma investigators. But, you know, in the rest of oncology, there are all kinds of debates going on about strategies that improve PFS without effects on survival. And I guess one question I always ask is, you know, do we really have that whole model of driving the tumor burden down, particularly upfront or early relapse? in myeloma, is that an article of faith? Or do you think there's really solid evidence to say in the long run, it makes a difference?
1: You know, I'm going to say that in the long run, it is going to make a difference because I will tell you, I know we've always used PFS as a surrogate and we do believe in using PFS as a surrogate. But if you think about what's happened in myeloma over the last 15 years now, we have doubled and close to trebled our survival. In the old days, when I say old days, I'm talking about 2001 and 2002, people with multiple myeloma stage one, two, and three lived on an average for five, four, and two and a half years. That's not the case anymore, Neil, and they are living now. A person with stage 1 disease will quite easily live for 12, 13 years plus. Somebody with stage 3 disease is now living easily for 7 and 8 years. So we have already doubled that survival, and that is because of these incremental benefits in terms of progression-free survival. In terms of what the best response should be and how it relates to outcomes, you know, the IFM data is a good data set to look at. And this was the first time in a randomized way, I think it was Harvey avit who presented the data on MRD from a subset of multiple myeloma patients from the IFM-DFCI trial. So they included both the American as well as the French patients in this data set. And what they looked at is achieving MRD negativity. They looked at different methods of ascertaining MRD negativity. So they looked at flow cytometry as one method. And the other method is the genotypic method of looking at MRD negativity. And what was noted here was, I believe it was about 250-odd patients, a little over that, where they were able to study MRD by genotypic methods. And in more than 90% of patients, we were actually able to do MRD testing in this patient population. And then again, what Harvey did very nicely in his presentation is broke down patients, whether they had just RVD alone or RVD with transplant, and looked at those who were MRD negative versus those who were MRD positive. And the ones who were MRD negative, the outcomes were by far very much better. So our goal absolutely should be to try and get to MRD negativity. We have known in oncology all along that you need to have a good upfront response. You need to have a durable response. And I think with these combinations where the transplant is incorporated, or not because a significant number of people did develop MRD negativity even in the non-transplant group of patients. So again, I think what these studies are going to show us is who are the ones who absolutely will need the transplant. And if we can use tools such as looking at MRD negativity as your criteria for treatment and getting to MRD negativity, we'd have a better sense of who absolutely needs the transplant versus who we can do away without the transplant.
0: So what do they report in this IFM data set in terms of MRD measurement?
1: So they looked at MRD negativity in close to 475 patients, and they looked at it over two time points. And these were patients who had achieved a VGPR or better. So you had to have achieved a VGPR or better. And what was done here is both flow cytometry and NGS. Now for NGS, which is the genotypic method, MRD was evaluated, I believe, I'm thinking more close to 200. 54 patients. I don't have that number in front of me right now. But what was seen here was that this test was possible in 92% of people, and it was quite sensitive. It was sensitive to 10 to the times 6 cells, so extremely sensitive in picking up MRD negativity. And plus, the advantage of using the NGS method of doing this analysis was the fact that you didn't need to have fresh cells. For flow cytometry, you have to process the cells fresh. It needs to go to the lab fresh and flow cytometry needs to be done on the fresh sample. For NGS, what you can do is use bone marrow and use the diagnostic bone marrow sample from a patient and try and figure out what the genotype on the myeloma cell is and then look for that same genotype in the residual cells at the time of starting maintenance. So they did it year one and they did it after they'd finished their induction treatment. Those were the two time points that people ended up looking for MRD.
0: So another presentation that gained a lot of attention, it kind of fits into the same sort of paradigm in terms of the transplant data you just talked about with the SWOG study that compared RVD to RD. Can you talk a little bit about that trial in patients who are not transplant eligible?
1: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, this was the SWOG study, which looked at newly diagnosed patients. And these were generally patients who were not going forward with the transplant. So they were allowed to collect, but the idea was to have them transplant deferred. And these were randomized to RD versus RVD. Now, we did not up until recently have a randomized trial looking at a triplet versus a doublet. And, you know, most of at least uh, practice in the United States in a transplant eligible patient, which is not exactly the population in the SWOG study, is the fact that we are using a triplet combination. But what this study very nicely showed for the first time is that you're seeing a benefit in terms of both progression-free survival and, in fact, overall survival as well. So that if you get the triplet regimen of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, you not only had disease control for a longer time, but you also lived longer because of the triplet combination. Now, there are a few caveats to this, and some of those caveats include the fact that at the time the SWOG study was designed, bortezomib was still being used intravenously. It was still being given twice a week. And therefore, if you look at the toxicity of R V D versus RD, the toxicity in the RVD was much higher and it was mainly neuropathy, which was noted in the bortezomib treatment arm. Now, with practice changing over to using mostly subcutaneous bortezomib, I think, you know, this is a very reasonable regimen. And I think once again, we've shown now that it's triplet combinations which should be used. They have a better response and not just a better response, but the durability of response translates into both a progression-free sub- survival benefit as well as an overall survival benefit. As you see all of this data, the IFM data, for example, or even the SWOG data now, which suggests that you should be using triplets up front. And end of the day, what is most important? The most important thing is the Response. You know, forget all the genetic heterogeneity, forget high risk versus low risk. If you are able to get your patient in the best possible remission, and if you can get to a really high quality remission, which we can now measure with tools like that PET CT scan as well as genotypic techniques, that should be the goal of treatment. And really, the best way to achieve that is by using combination treatments. If the high risk patients do well, the low risk patients are going to do even better.
0: So a corollary is what's the optimal triple therapy? And I don't think we saw any major new data sets in terms of the so-called KRD regimen using carfilzomib. We'll talk about some data that came out on carfilzomib at the meeting. But at this point, you know, the people who did the studies on carfilzomib upfront believe that you see a deeper response with it than bortezomib-related triplets. Obviously, it's indirect comparison. What's your take on that?
1: So as you pointed out, it's never been compared head to head just as yet. Having said that, there is an ongoing trial, as you know, the ECOG trial is accruing as we speak, which is comparing KRD to RVD. And we'll see if we can see that difference in depth of response. Having said that, you know, in the upfront setting, there is data. And Dr. Viak presented that at this ASH as well, where he looked at patients who were transplant eligible and got KRD. And over the course of their treatment, they have followed these patients for MRD negativity. And we are certainly seeing very high response rates in this patient population. And we are also seeing fairly deep remissions in these patients. So I think we just have to wait and see. There are other studies in the relapse setting, as you know, which have compared bortezomib and carfilzomib. And there is data to show that maybe carfilzomib gives us better responses but i do think we have to wait on the krd versus rvd study to form any formal conclusions here the other issue is it's a convenience factor and it's what people are willing to adopt now we are very used to using bortezomib we are very used to the toxicity profile of bortezomib and given that we are using it subcutaneously it's an extremely convenient regimen for patients so So I think it's a habit more, I would say. And as the data becomes more and more available, there will be more people wanting to consider using KRD carfilzomib, as of right now, is not the most convenient because of the dosing schedule. You know, we are giving it two days a week, three weeks, so it does take a lot of time. From a toxicity standpoint, I think those toxicities can be quite well managed, especially in the upfront setting. We don't see too much in the way of toxicity. It's more in the relapse setting, but it's more, I believe, the inconvenience. And having said that, at this year's ASH, we have looked at other dosing schedules for carfilzomib, and once we have those ironed out. I do think that's how carfilzomib will be used in the future, where we would consider using it weekly, which is a lot more convenient than what we're doing right now.
0: Let's talk about that paper you were referring to, Abstract 373, looking at weekly carfilzomib. What did they look at there, and what do you think it means?
1: So this is actually a really good study. I think it's a small study out here. And this was just their phase one, two experience of using weekly carfilzomib and going up to the MTD. And what was noted by Dr. Berenson in the studies is that you could go all the way up to 70 milligrams per meter square of carfilzomib with dexamethasone. And this is kind of the prelude to what's going to happen next, which is compare the way carfilzomib is approved right now, that is the twice a week regimen with this once weekly regimen at 70 mix per meter square i think the important thing to learn from this is the fact that this is unlike Protezumib, this proteasome inhibitor has a dose response. You can actually go up on doses and you can see an improvement in response. And if you can do this once a week, it's going to be a whole lot more convenient to patients as opposed to having to come two days in a row the way it's traditionally done. So, this is going to be the way cafilzumib is probably going to be used in the future as a single agent with dexamethasone. believe 70 milligrams per meter square is the appropriate dose. Along with these studies, we are looking at the same kind of regimen with other backbone combinations as well. And there we are still looking at dose escalations, and we'll see if we can get to the 70 mix per meter square, say in combination with, for example, lenalidomide. But it'll be a much more convenient way as long as it's a safe way of giving the carfilzomib.
0: So I take it this is not quite ready for prime time?
1: Not yet. I think we need to complete the studies because I don't think it necessarily should be used by everybody just as yet until we have a good safety signal.
0: So again, along the theme in terms of proteasome inhibitors, one of those new agents approved is an oral proteasome inhibitor, exazimib, And we saw a number of presentations on that agent at ASH. One abstract 26 was a randomized phase two study of an all-oral combination with exazimib, cyclophosphamide, and low-dose DEX. And then there was another triplet study looking at exazimib combined with lenalidomide index in patients with relapsed refractory disease, the so-called tourmaline study. What about these two trials that looked at combination resumes that included exazimib?
1: So again, exazomib, I do believe, is here to stay and is one of the backbone drugs for myeloma. You know, the more important study is the Tumulin trial, which is the phase three trial comparing lenalidomide dexamethasone versus lenalidomide dexamethasone and exazomib in patients who've had one to three lines of prior treatment. And it was close to 700 patients, which Philippe Moreau presented on at the SASH. And these were relapse patients who were given the triplet versus the double. Again, there was a significant benefit in terms of progression-free survival for the triplet. The triplet patients who got the tree drug regimen did much better. The PFS difference was to the tune of about a little over four months. The response rates were better. But what was really quite striking to me was, you know, when he showed the table with toxicities and it was kind of one had to really scratch and look hard and figure out which was the placebo arm and which was the arm which had the exazomib in it. Because what this triplet was, was an extremely well-tolerated regimen so that you're seeing improvement in responses as well as progression-free survival without a lot of toxicity. So exazomib, as you know, is given as an oral drug once a week, three weeks in a row, uh, very convenient schedule, very well tolerated. So I do think this is going to be a drug which is going to be used. It is being studied in the upfront setting. The combination with Cytoxan was a useful phase two study. And, you know, it needed to be studied because there are certain patients who present with renal failure where we would consider using a proteasome inhibitor with Cytoxan to get tumor reduction. And not all patients can get bortezomib only because sometimes because of toxicities like neurotoxin neuropathy which are associated in these patients. So that is a combination we would be studying in the future. This is something exasmib is going to be studied in the upfront setting and I know that tumulin 2 is an ongoing and nearly, com- it's actually completed accrual and hopefully the results of tumulin 2 will be presented at ASCO, I'm not sure, but certainly at ASH later on this year. And that's the study where ixazomib has been used in the upfront setting, newly diagnosed, but non-transplant eligible patients. But again, the theme remains the same. It's three drugs which are better than two drugs, not only in the upfront setting, but also in the relapse setting. And you know this, I've said this all along, I've always used triplets in the upfront setting, and therefore I don't see why I should be using a doublet in the relapse setting, because if anything, as myeloma is progressing and relapsing, it is becoming more clonally evolved. It is going to need more drugs, and I do think you have to use triplets even in the relapse setting.
0: So sometimes it's hard, particularly with new agents, to look at data and really figure out how it's going to play out in practice. What's your clinical experience with exazimib? Do you see quality life side effects? Do you see peripheral neuropathy? I mean, it's from the data, it doesn't sound like you see much at all.
1: So I think quality of life is a big deal. You know, people would absolutely take this pill because it's easy. There's no issues around neuropathy. There's very little and there's nothing in the way of nausea and people don't even know that they're on the drugs. So they love being on it. And, you know, the way exasmib is approved right now, is easy for patients to be on it. Having said that, you know, I think part of the issue right now, which you're getting at, I believe, is we've had so many drug approvals in the last year. We've had five, which is a very fortunate place to be in, but then it becomes hard for us to figure out how do you sequence drugs, what do you use, and when do you use it? And if you look at most of these trials which have gotten their approval after one to three lines of treatment, such as the Tomalin study, such as the Aspire study, the Elotuzumab study, which we've not yet talked about, or even the earlier Panabinostat with Bortezumab study, the problem with all of these are these are patients who have to be LEN-sensitive. They were the ones who were included in all of these trials because the control arm here was lendx Now, what we don't have in our patient population, for example, you saw the RVD data up front. We start with RVD. We may or may not transplant a patient. But then after that, everybody is on Len maintenance And so most of our first relapses are on Len maintenance And if they are on Len maintenance a lot of these trials don't, in fact, You know, I don't think we would jump. do any of these trials because that's not the patient population these folks treat it. So adding on something to LEN is probably not enough. And switching the class of drug in that case would be what I would consider doing. So doing a Cuflizumab-based trial or maybe a pomalidomide-based trial is something we would think about doing, at least out here. And then subsequently going back to some of these other combinations down the line would be what we'd use. And I do think most of these are coming more in the upfront settings, specifically exazomib with Lendex. You know, we'll see what the Tumulin-2 data shows, but my sense is in the transplant ineligible, older, more frail patient, you are going to be using something like exazomib with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And because of how well-tolerated exazomib is, it is going to become part of a maintenance strategy going forward in myeloma.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would think that would be a huge advantage to have an oral agent if you're going to be using it for a long period of time. Let's bring in also the other oral proteasome inhibitor that we've been hearing about the last couple of years. We did see another some more data, including abstract 378 on that, a prosomib, and this was a prosomib pomalidomide index. dex. Can you talk about this study, but also where we are with a prosomib? I know there were issues about toxicity and tolerability.
1: Yeah, so you know, I know that Jatin Shah presented the data on pamladamide with oprozumib. I think we've still had troubles with the formulation of oprozumib. Oprozumib, as a drug, does work, it is a good oral proteasome inhibitor which shows anti myeloma activity. But what we have seen with the current formulation is the fact that we are seeing a fair amount of upper GI toxicity, which kind of defeats the purpose of an oral drug. So, I do think they're going back to the drawing board in trying to get a better formulation in place and once we have that better formulation in place, I think we'll have another oral proteasome inhibitor, which will obviously then need to be compared with the one we have currently, which is ixazomib. And there will be differences like bortezomib and carfilzomib. You know, prosomib is supposed to be an irreversible proteasome inhibitor. Once we have the right formulation, whether that will translate into an improvement in responses and duration of responses in patients as well is something we're going to have to wait and watch for.
0: So we kind of alluded a little bit to the monoclonal antibodies. And of course, now that they're approved, everybody's asking, where do they fit in? And I thought we could, you mentioned elotuzumab. And also, I wanted to ask you in terms of that scenario you just talked about, the patient with the relapse disease on LEN maintenance. First of all, let's talk about a couple of the papers that were presented at ASH. One was the Eloquent 2 update on the phase three randomized open-label study of ELO with Len-Dex, and the other abstract 510 was ELO plus bortezomib and dex. What do we learn from these two papers?
1: So the Eloquent trial has already been published, as you know. What was done at ASH was just a follow-up on this. And what was presented or published in the New England Journal was a two-year follow-up. And now we have a three-year follow-up. And what's important to note is in this patient population, the PFS as well benefit persisted for as long as three years. So if you have a response to elotuzumab in combination with Lendex, That is a sustained response for a long time. And the other important thing to remember about elotuzumab is it's generally well-tolerated. Having said that, as a single agent, it has no single agent activity. We know that from older studies. And the way it works is by really augmenting the natural killer NK cell activity. So it does two things. One is it activates a patient's NK cells. And two is it tags the myeloma cells themselves with that elotuzumab and allows those myeloma cells to be recognized by the natural killer cells. So it's more an immune way of working. And it always, almost always works in combination with an imid And in this case, the data was presented with lenalidomide. And again, as I pointed out earlier, Neil, I don't think we have a lot of patients who could have made it on the eloquent trial, because most of our patients are progressing on len maintenance. But if you think about, if you want to be using lenalidomide as your treatment for relapse disease then adding on a monoclonal antibody such as elotuzumab would be a perfectly reasonable approach. And again, I think a lot of factors will come into that decision-making. How aggressive is the relapse? What are the other comorbidities associated with the relapse? Or if it's just more kind of a biochemical relapse with a little bit of anemia, that's when I would absolutely consider using something like elotuzumab. I do think going forward, you know, elotuzumab is is probably going to be used earlier on. And again, because of how well-tolerated elotuzumab is and because of the durability of its response, it's going to be considered more in the maintenance setting. It's not going to be necessarily used in rip-roaring disease because you have other options that you're going to have to reach out to. In terms of the combination with bortezomib, you know, what the trial essentially showed is, yes, it can be combined with bortezomib. The benefit of combining elotuzumab with bortezomib is... It's not like the image, so there's a little over two months of a difference in PFS. I'm not sure that that's something which is worth kind of harnessing, and I don't know if a proteasome inhibitor is necessarily the best partner with a drug like elotuzumab.
0: So it's interesting, though, that the idea then I guess in a way, you were alluding to the possibility, and this is being studied, of using elo maintenance,
1: You know, that's one way of thinking about it, absolutely. But again, I think we have to be a little bit cautious about that as well because we are using an immune strategy as a maintenance strategy and we really don't know what the long-term toxicities of some of these immune modulators are. Having said that, you know, Eloquent has been ongoing for very long and we have patients who are way out four and five years on elotuzumab and doing extremely well. And elotuzumab is certainly not associated with some of the other kind of immunological toxicities that we are used to seeing, like the pneumonitis and the colitis, et cetera, which we now see with checkpoint inhibitors as well. So maybe it's a different class of drugs, but that's exactly where I would consider really testing it and maybe would be the best use of a drug like elotuzumab.
0: But I mean, are there any trials out there, for example, post-transplant maintenance LEN versus maintenance LEN ELO?
1: So there is a trial which is coming out through SWOG, and this is for high-risk myeloma patients where ELO has been added for the high-risk myeloma patients, and in that trial, I do believe that ELO is going to be continued on. So we will have some data there.
0: So, you know, it's interesting to try to figure out, you said, okay, if you're going to use LEN or relapsed refractory disease, add ELO, and you have to stop and think, okay, what are the situations where you would use LEN? Obviously, if they've never had it, but I'm not sure how often that happens, but... Where I've heard people talking about it is a very common situation of the patient who relapses on maintenance len, maybe a biochemical relapse that's sort of minor, the patient's totally stable, the idea of bumping up the lenalidomide dose from maintenance to therapeutic and adding in ELO. What do you think about that strategy?
1: I think that's a reasonable strategy. I'm not a big believer personally of increasing the dose of lenalidomide. You know, a lot of people will go from 10, go up to 15 to 25. You know, you do get a small bump in that response and that bump lasts for a couple of months, three months. But ultimately, if you're progressing on lenalidomide, what you are showing is your refractory to lenalidomide. And it just might take you two or three months to show that. Now, I don't think we have data to show that ELO2 is able to overcome LEN refractoriness. What we have shown with the Eloquent studies is the fact that when you add on elotuzumab to LENDEX, it improves the response rates of LENDEX. So I'm not sure that I would necessarily use it in that situation, but I think it's something worth thinking about and testing for
0: the future. So whenever I talk to a myeloma investigator nowadays, I'm always in the top of my mind is trying to figure out how they're utilizing all these new agents in the relapse refractory setting. So let's bring in a couple more data sets before I ask you what you're doing for practical purposes. So one of the other obvious players is daratumumab. We did see some more data on daratumumab. We picked out a few abstracts for you to comment on. 1, Abstract 29, efficacy of daratumumab alone in heavily pretreated patients, 507, daratumumab combined with lendex with relapsed refractory disease, and finally, a multi-center phase 1B study of daratumumab combined with POMDEX. What do we learn from these studies, and where are we today in general with what we know about daratumumab?
1: So unlike elotuzumab, you know, daratumumab obviously has single-agent activity. That's how it's gotten approved. It's gotten approved based on the two trials which Saad presented at ASH, and he combined the serious trial and the phase 1, 2 trial, which are now both published, one in the New England Journal, the other in Lancet Oncology. These were very refractory patients. So these were quad refractory. When I say quad refractory, they were refractory to lenalidomide, pomalidomide, bortezomib, and even carfilzomib. And yet you saw a response rate of 30% in this patient population. And if you followed Saad's presentation at ASH, the folks who responded, you know, they are continuing to respond without having achieved a median PFS. So it's gone beyond 16, 17, 18 months as a single agent. So I do think this is absolutely remarkable. This is how daratumumab is approved. And, you know, given that we are all using combinations going forward in both upfront and the relapse setting, all of us have these patients in our practices. So daratumumab as a single agent, absolutely we are seeing a 30% response rate in a very refractory population. When you add on the IMID, that response rate, whether it's pomalidomide or lenalidomide, based on whichever study you look at, those response rates go up to 60 or 70%. In practice, I do believe, despite the fact that DARA has been approved as a single agent right now, it will be used more commonly in combination with an IMID. It's generally, you know, there's been a lot of talk around its toxicity. You know, it's like any other antibody. The first time you infuse daratumumab, it does take a long time. You know, you have to plan for a six to eight hour day, knowing that you will have reactions to the antibody. And typically you see infusion related reactions with the first cycle, first dose or the second dose, and maybe up to the third dose in about 60% where the numbers keep going down. The problem with Dara is just the duration of the infusion, even after, say, three and four treatments. I think the shortest infusion time that we've been able to go down in our practice is about three and a half to four hours. But it's a drug which works, and we do have this very refractory patient population. So as long as you can be on top of the first few infusion-related reactions, I think Dara is here to stay, and Dara is going to be combined with a lot of the backbone drugs that we already have available to us
0: can you talk a little bit more i mean honestly i've asked people a lot of people about dirotumab the last couple years but it's only been very recently that it kind of came on my radar about the infusion reaction thing it sounds like it's you know kind of a lot worse than what we typically see with monoclonal antibodies do you taper the time of the reaction based on the infusion
1: you know, I don't think it's worse than any other monoclonal antibody. I think we're used to elotuzumab, where elotuzumab really doesn't cause a lot of infusion-related reactions. You know, if you go back to the good old days when we first started using rituximab, we saw the same kind of toxicities with rituximab as well. And we soon got used to using rituximab because rituximab also causes infusion-related reactions. So I don't think DARA is very different from that standpoint.
0: So you think DARA is similar qualitatively in terms of infusion reaction to rituximab?
1: I would say so. Maybe a little bit more, but we've used a lot of DARA over the last, say, six months now. And yes, with infusion one, you will have a little bit of maybe some shortness of breath. But as long as you slow that infusion, give them the steroids, treat them they're fine. We've never had to abort an infusion. I think planning for a long day is the more challenging piece with our busy infusion rooms, you know. And I think what's happened is, you know, we have a lot of affiliates from around the Harvard Cancer Center where we, you know, at MGH, we will open our infusion room at 7 in the morning and close at 8 at night. But some of our satellite sites are not able to do that. And therefore, if you're planning a Dara infusion, you know, have the patient come in the morning, start at 8 or 9 in the morning, as opposed to give them a 2 p.m. appointment. So those are more kind of the practical challenges, plan for a long day. But outside of that, I think in general, those infusion-related reactions are fairly easy to treat. We've never had to hospitalize a patient for these treatments.
0: Let's add in to the mix the other recently approved agent. We saw some more data on that. Ed Ash, and then I'm going to ask you how you put it all together, but uh, phase one, two trial, abstract 187 of the combination of LEN, Bortesma, DEX, plus panobinostat so sort of RVD slash transplant-eligible patients. Can you comment on that paper and also where panobinostat's fitting in your algorithm right now and where you think it's heading?
1: So right now, you know, the way Panobinostat is approved is in the relapse setting it's approved in combination with bortezomib. Now, the RVD-PANO trial was a, you know, it's a phase two trial, which is an investigator-initiated trial, and that data certainly looks good, but that's not how it is approved. It's still an abstract form in a presentation form. Now, the panobinostat, when combined with bortezomib, does improve your progression-free survival based on the panorama data by about four months. These are patients who've had, and it's very specific, Quickly. Exactly approved for people who've had prior bortezomib and who've also had prior lenalidomide. Now with panobinostat comes a black box warning as well, where they've talked about thrombocytopenia and diarrhea. And, you know, when you combine it with drugs like bortezomib, you do see worsening of the thrombocytopenia and diarrhea because bortezomib does cause those problems as well. So panobinostat certainly is an approved drug. It's not necessarily the most user-friendly drug to use and patient-friendly drug to use because of the toxicities. A lot of fatigue, a lot of GI toxicity, a lot of thrombocytopenia with panobinostat. And I think it's important to remember that although it's approved at a dose of 20 milligrams Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, this is where It's critically important to try and dose modify and adjust the dosing of panobinostat. When we've combined panobinostat with RVD, we've seen absolutely remarkable responses, but then it becomes hard to try and understand that data because RVD itself gives you very high response rates. And then how much is Pano adding to that? And we'll have to look at slightly longer term follow-up to see, is it worth our time adding a drug like Panobinistad or should we think about adding something different. So I think panobinostat faces the challenge of the way it's approved in combination with bortezomib because that's how we are restricted with its use. And with combining it with bortezomib, it does have the challenge of that increased toxicity. Now, having said that, the Panorama studies were again done with twice-weekly bortezomib. A lot of times the bortezomib was given intravenously there and that may have caused compounding of the toxicity. So that when you go to subcutaneous bortezomib and when you do it once a week and then add the panobinostat, it may be better tolerated.
0: So I'm going to ask if you could describe a patient, if there is one, a patient scenario right now where you would utilize panobinostat, if you can describe a patient scenario where you'd use DARA and how you'd use it and a patient scenario for ELO.
1: Sure, I'll start with the PANO. So, the PANO, I would say if I have a patient who is a transplant eligible patient who got RVD was transplanted and then was on maintenance lenalidomide and continued maintenance lenalidomide for, say, 18 months and now is progressing with significant bone disease and has only been on lenalidomide. You know, I would like to change from an imid to a proteasome inhibitor. I think using, in that situation, bortezomib with panobinostat would be a perfectly reasonable approach. This patient has had an imid, has had a proteasome in a also. One of the problems though, I do think for Pano is they've had to have had two lines of treatment and we all consider this as one line of treatment. So in this situation, you know, if you want to add in the bortezomib and then add the pano after that would be something I would think about using Pano. So Pano, whenever I'm thinking of using bortezomib again, and because I use combinations, I would certainly think about using pano in that setting
0: just to be clear, though, you raised the question of, you know, two prior therapies, but wouldn't the induction RVD and the maintenance, wouldn't that be considered two different? No, not really.
1: Not really. That would be one. So the way we, you know, put them on trials, that's all a continuum of one treatment, the transplant also being part of the same thing. So if they've had that, then have had, you know, at relapse, have had pomalidomide, relapse and pomalidomide, then want to use bortezomib again, that's the time to consider bortezomib with, say, panobinostat.
0: So then the reverse in terms of where you'd use ELO.
1: So elo 2 right now, a little bit harder because, you know, the patient population used in the eloquent trial was a very... Len naive population. So that is a challenge, and that's why I think it's important to highlight the fact that, you know, our expectations need to be kind of, we're not going to get the same kind of data that we see on Eloquent. Again, if they are progressing on Len, I'm going to treat them on something else, whether it's a bortezomib based regimen or a capfilzomib based regimen, and if they relapse again after that, and lenalidomide is something I would consider using in that patient population. Then adding lenalidomide with the elotuzumab is something I would consider doing. Again, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, if my patient is progressing with lots of bone disease and lots of where the numbers are going up aggressively, I don't think I would necessarily use elotuzumab with lenalidomide because that's a combination which takes time to work, and it's not going to get your tumor burdened down very quickly. So it's a minority of patients, maybe the older patient population, where I am going to be using lenalidomide in any case, then adding on that elotuzumab would be reasonable.
0: And again, daratumumab, a typical scenario.
1: So, you know, daratumumab, it's easy right now because our patient population fits that profile. They've seen an IMIT, they've seen a proteasome inhibitor, and they're progressing on all of this. So we do have a lot of these patients who've had three, four, five lines of treatment, and single-agent daratumumab is being used quite a lot in that patient population. So I think it's easy to find a patient for datatumumab. It's a little bit harder for some of these other combinations because of the fact that we use so much of lenalidomide maintenance.
0: So it seems like we're talking about checkpoint inhibitor antibodies in every phase of cancer nowadays, except myeloma. Mm. Until <laughs> until now, maybe, I don't know, there were a couple of papers presented, abstracts 505, 506, with pembrolizumab, one combining it with Lendex, the other POMDEX. First of all, do we know about checkpoint inhibitors by themselves? Because I kind of had the impression they weren't that effective in myeloma.
1: Correct. So they have been studied as single agents, and they haven't done a whole lot as a single agent. But we do want to change this whole landscape, and we are going to see more and more interesting data with these checkpoint inhibitors. Because what was quite remarkable, despite the size of these studies, which were presented at ASH, so pembrolizumab, which is a PD one blocker, was combined with both lenalidomide and with pomalidomide in two separate studies. Not in a lot of patients, but what was striking. To to me was the fact that a lot of these patients were refractory to whatever image they were being combined with. So in the LEN PEMBRO study, for example, 50% of these patients were LEN refractory and when exposed to pembrolizumab, you were able to restore sensitivity to lenalidomide and you were able to demonstrate efficacy of close to 50%, which is, I think, quite remarkable. Same story with PEMBRO and pomalidomide. So I think we're going to see a lot of exciting data coming down the pike. We're already doing the studies with Lendex and different checkpoint inhibitors. We are also combining these with Palm in the relapse setting. And, you know, the fact that they are able to overcome the resistance of these imids is, in my mind, the most exciting exciting piece here, really.
0: So yeah, that is interesting. And you think about all the other situations where IMIDs are used in oncology in general, and you wonder, you know, about this kind of combination. Anyhow, to be continued. Another therapy that I hadn't associated in my mind that much with myeloma, except for a case here and there, is CAR-T therapy. And there was a late-breaking abstract On the first in human clinical trial for anti-B cell maturation antigen, chimeric antigen receptor, what is that and what did they report?
1: So again, very exciting advance. And, you know, immuno-oncology is here to stay for myeloma. We've always been dealing with immuno-oncology for a while now with the IMIDs, then elotuzumab, and now with Pembro and this CAR T-cell approach, I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities. We'd seen the initial case report on CAR T-cells, which came out of PEN. Ed Stadmeyer had presented that data, I believe, last year and published in the NEJM now, where they used a CAR T-cell approach in one myeloma patient who'd had lots and lots of different treatments, but this CAR T-cell was directed against CD19, so we weren't quite sure about whether that was the right target. Now, what Jim at the NIH has done, and which was a late-breaking abstract at ASH, was used BCMA. BCMA is a protein which is expressed on all plasma cells. So it's not myeloma-specific, but it's very specific to plasma cells. It's called the B-cell maturation antigen. So as your B cells mature, all of them are going to present with this BCMA. So as far as the target is concerned, we do think it's the right target. We've actually studied this whole pathway in myeloma for several years now. We have monoclonal antibodies which are directed against BCMA, and we're using them in clinical trials. And what Jim has done at the NIH here was engineer T cells from patients to recognize the BCMA antigen, and then to work against these myeloma cells with the T cells, which are infused back into patients. Patients get chemotherapy with fludarabine and cytoxan. And what was interesting here is this was an eight or nine patients that they presented at ASH this past December, and we are finally at the dose level. So it started off as a dose escalation study where they use different doses of those CAR T cells. And at the higher doses, we are actually seeing complete responses in patients. Now, again, very early data, but exciting nonetheless, because you're seeing complete responses in patients who otherwise have had very refractory disease and have been through every possible line of treatment. Now, the important thing to remember here would be to see how durable these responses are. And the other thing to remember is, you know, this is very specialized treatment. It can only and only happen at very specific centers where you're doing cellular therapy because the toxicity of these cellular therapies is quite high. People get what is known as a surge like response, a cytokine response syndrome, where when you inject back the T-cells, you can get all kinds of high fevers, low blood pressure, and you really require ICU-level care. We know that there are certain cytokines which are responsible for this, like IL-6, and we have antibodies such as tocilizumab, which are used in the setting. But this is not a trivial treatment. It is a very designer-specific treatment, like the monoclonal antibodies and this really needs to be done in a specialized center but has the potential of a curative option. So we are now doing studies, and, you know, we will have studies with the CAR T cells directed against BCMA. The NIH is doing a trial, which is a BCMA-directed CAR T cell, which will be opening at our site and several sites around the country. And we will really test whether or not these CAR T cells are here to stay. But really, it is an exciting advance in myeloma.